1 Corinthians 16 and verse number 5, Paul says, Now I will come unto you when I shall pass through Macedonia, for I do pass through Macedonia. Oftentimes we read that and think, well, wait a minute, uh, isn't Paul kind of being a little presumptuous as to what tomorrow holds? Well, maybe, maybe not. I, I tend to think that not, because he says in verse 6, and it may be that I will abide, yea, in winter with you, that ye may bring me on my journey whithersoever I go, for I will not see you now by the way, but I trust to tarry a while with you if the Lord permits. So I tend to think that Paul's not being presumptuous on what tomorrow holds. I think that he's just confident that he knows what God wants him to do, and he's determined that that's what he's going to do. And this is not my message here this morning, but it's something that we all struggle with. If you don't know the specifics of what God wants you to do, then just stay busy doing what the Word of God teaches you to do. You be faithful with that, and he will fill in the blanks. Verse 8, but I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost. Our message comes from verse number 9, where he says, for a great door and effectual is open unto me, and there are many adversaries. I want to talk to you this morning about the forces that work against you. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to help us this morning. Anoint us with the power of the Holy Spirit, not for our sake, but for your sake and for the listeners. God, we ask that you do a work in our hearts. Teach us, instruct us, encourage us, and challenge us to follow you. Lord, uh, Brother Randy's already prayed it, but we pray it once again. If anyone here today doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Savior, Lord, we pray that you speak to their heart and draw them to you. And we pray that they'd get saved before they leave this place. Lord, for your children that are gathered here today to worship you in spirit and in truth, we are looking for the help that we need to live for you. We know that that help comes from the Bible. Help us to faithfully preach and teach these principles in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You may be seated. As we look at this, verse number nine, there are a lot of things in here that we could preach a long time about, but I'm going to hit some of these highlights very briefly. First of all, this concept where Paul says, a great door and effectual is opened unto me. I want to talk about that door just for a moment. A door in the Bible is just simply an opportunity. And false religion and much the majority of the religious world of Christianity, if you will, has this false concept, a misunderstanding, a misappropriation of something that Jesus told the apostle Peter. He told Peter, he said, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And because of that statement, God saying to Jesus saying to Peter, I'm giving you these keys, uh, the religious world has assumed that when you die and go to heaven, then Peter's going to be standing at the pearly gates and giving you your entrance exam. Now, I have been guilty of telling some of those jokes when they were funny, but it's not true, it's not biblical, Okay. A door, a key is something that opens a door, and a door in the Bible is an opportunity. And if you study the ministry of the Apostle Peter, he was the first apostle to preach a gospel message to the Jews, and he was the first apostle to preach to the Gentiles. So the door 
that was open to the gospel to the Jews was opened by Peter. The door to the Gentiles was opened by Peter as well. Now, God called the apostle Paul later on to be the, gen the apostle to the Gentiles, but it was the apostle Peter who opened that door. Now, that's an apologetic study for another time, but I just wanted to throw that out. Regardless, a door is an opportunity, and the word effectual means to produce a desired effect. And so Paul is saying, look, I've got an opportunity to make a difference here. And because of that, there are many adversaries. Now, an adversary comes from the root word adverse, which means opposite or to oppose. Adversary is the source of opposition, while adversity is the event of opposition. Whenever you are in a place or position to make a positive difference, there are going to be many adversaries. The obvious ones are not always the ones that cause the most opposition. Brothers and sisters, you're living in a very sin-cursed world, in a very sin-cursed body. And listen, just knowing right from wrong does not mean that there is not adversity and adversaries. Everything that's good and right in this world, as it is currently, is not going to be without opposition. You're going to struggle, and things aren't going to come easy. If something's coming easy right now, rest assured, you're going to have some difficulty with the same very thing tomorrow. There are many adversaries. Look at it with me once again. For a great door and effectual is open unto me, and there are many adversaries. Probably the most obvious one is, number one, the devil. We know the devil is an adversary because 1 Peter 5.8 says quite clearly, be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Now we have adversity and adversaries in our life that are causing us hassle and problems and distractions, but this adversary is not trying to hurt you, he's trying to destroy you. He wants to devour you. He's not playing games. He's not interested in winning the battle. He's interested in destroying your life. He doesn't play by any rules. He doesn't play fair. He doesn't fight fair. In fact, you don't have to be an expert about lions to know a few things about lions. A lion is a predatory beast. And every predatory beast likes to stay hidden. They like to prey on the weak. Now, in spiritual warfare, that doesn't mean that the strong will get overlooked. In fact, quite the contrary. If you're a strong Christian, rest assured, the devil as a roaring lion is going to be giving you plenty of attention trying to devour you. You say, well, wait a minute, I'm not the weak. Why is, why is he being inconsistent with this analogy? Well, I'll tell you what, the devil as a roaring lion, he's not just selecting the weak, but he's looking for a weakness in every one of God's children's lives. And we all have them. We all have a weakness, and that is what he is going to exploit. He's going after you because if, uh, 
So anyhow, if he's going after you, if there is something in your life that is effectual, making a difference, rest assured we are in a battle, and if you are making a difference for Jesus Christ, if God is working in your life, he is coming after you, and he is going to try to exploit any weakness that you may have. Now, that weakness could be marital conflict. Uh, many of our folks went to the couples conference just this past Friday, and we learned some things, some helpful things in order to help us in our marriage relationships. But if there's a weakness in your marriage, the devil knows if he can get to mom and dad, he can destroy all of the young'uns in your home. The devil knows where he can make the most difference. If there is a weakness in, say, a pastor's life, the devil is going to exploit that because he knows if he can take down the, sheep, the shepherd, then the sheep are going to scatter. He is strategic. He is intelligent. He's not, oh, kitty, kitty, kitty. He is a roaring lion. I have never been in Africa where there, I've been to Egypt, but I've never been to the part of Africa where lions actually roam. I'm kind of glad for that. Might be kind of exhilarating, an adrenaline rush to go out and be the great white hunter to go and hunt the lions, but I've never experienced that. The closest that I've come to a lion is in the zoo. And for the most part, when you see lions in the zoo, they just look like a bunch of lazy, just bums, just laying there doing nothing. Every now and then their tail will swish a little bit. But I had one occasion where one was actually up and walking back and forth on the other side of the bars of the cage. And let me tell you something, that made me a little nervous because I'm standing there watching and it's pacing back and forth. Never made eye contact with me, but it's like mouth is open and it's drooling and it's pacing back and forth. I don't think if I got inside that cage, it would be a pretty sight. Most people don't go into a cage with a lion. I know there was uh, someone doing maintenance at a zoo uh, years ago, and uh, the lions were supposed to already be pinned up. They'd already been fed, and he was going in to do some maintenance, but somebody dropped the ball, and that lion was still loose inside that cage, and this uh, maintenance guy got mauled really, really bad. You don't want to play around with lions. I don't care how cuddly and uh, you want to pet them, and you want to befriend them, but the devil is out to destroy you, and he will exploit your weaknesses. Uh, he will exploit your weaknesses uh, with temptations. Uh, you may have a sex temptation that is uh, make you weak and vulnerable. He's going to exploit that. He's going to make sure that he puts you in a scenario where you'll be tempted he may put you in a toxic relationship where that toxic relationship is constantly beating you down emotionally, beating you down mentally until you're so weak that he can speak into your ear and whisper into your ear different thoughts and ideas and he can destroy you that way. He may find a weakness of instability or even a critical spirit doesn't matter. The list could go on and on and on. You may not be aware of your weaknesses, but I guarantee you the roaring lion has been watching and observing, and he knows exactly where you're weak, and that's where he's going to attack you. 
He's going to use your strength against you. If you are a discerning person, and you're always just reading all of the details and everything that's going on, if you always get a sense of feeling about other people, he's going to take and he's going to try to turn you into a critical person or a cynical person. If you're an overpatient person, he's going to try to make you passive. If you're a courageous person, let's go do this, let's get her done, he's going to try to make you impatient. If you're compassion, if you have compassion toward other people, he's going to try to turn that against you and make you hypersensitive. Yeah, it's good to be sensitive about other people's feelings, but it's not so good to be oversensitive about your own feelings. If you're ambitious, you want to see results and you're driven, if you're not careful, you'll make little compromises in order to fulfill your goals. And I could go on and on and on talking about how the, the devil as a roaring lion will take He'll prey on your weakness. He'll take any strength that you have and he'll try to turn that around and work that against you. There are two simple keys in dealing with this adversary. We find them both in James chapter 4, verse number 7. The Bible says, Submit yourself therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. It starts with submitting to God. That's the one thing that is not natural in human nature. We don't like to submit to anyone. We like to have it our way. We like to control. We like to be in control. But when we submit to God, we're saying, God, we are going to follow you and your word. You're bigger. You're wiser. You're stronger. I am submitting myself to you. Now, it does no good whatsoever to resist the devil. Oh, I'm going to resist him. I'm not going to give in. I'm not going to say no. I mean, it's like this tug of war. I'm not letting go. If you don't submit to God, your resistance of the devil is futile. It's of no value whatsoever. This is like epoxy. You have a resin and you have a hardener. Both of them are just gooey, sticky messes until you put them together and you mix them together and they bond. They have a chemical effect. Submitting to God and resisting the devil, you've got to have both of those working together. Don't give up and don't give in. When we submit to God, our adversary knows that he's wasting his time and his effort. Now, I've heard preachers preach this from this text. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. I personally don't think that when he flees from us, he's scared of us. I just think that he's wise enough to know that, hey, if this guy is submitting to God, I'm not going to be effective. And so he just quits wasting his time and goes and uh, tries to bother somebody else. So our first obvious adversary is the devil. God gives us crystal clear formula how to deal with that adversary. Now, I would throw in another passage of Scripture where the Bible says that when we submit ourselves to God, that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So mixed in, maybe, maybe this epoxy resin of submission and resisting the devil, maybe the stir stick is our humility and being willing to say, I can't handle this myself. So obviously we need to stay humble before the Lord. The second one, our second adversary is, is kind of a, a manifold concept. 
And I'll try to deal with as many of these as possible here this morning. And that is number two, people. Oh, yeah. People can be an adversary. Unbelievers can be an adversary. Uh, Brother Kimberlin said in our street ministry, we, you know, we get some thumbs up and some horn honks and people that seem to appreciate what we're doing. In Statesville, it is an overwhelming positive. I mean, if you want to do something for the Lord and not have to catch much flack, this day and age in this place is about as good as it gets. What a shame that there's people in other places that they go out and do it and take abuse for it. Listen, I know some people that have tried to win people to Christ in the French Quarter in New Orleans and actually had people drive by and throw urine in their face. Uh, that would not be a very pleasant thing. And yet some of those will still still go out there faithfully and try to have a burden for those people and win them to Christ. Brother Mike Veldheis, he ministers to the Cocopa Indians there in Yuma, Arizona. I've been out with him on visitation and I've seen how he loves those people and how even though they treat him with contempt and just despite in their heart and I've seen their countenance and I've seen them murmuring while he's just staying focused on telling them about Jesus Christ. I've stood right behind him and beside him while that's went on, and I just go, how do you do it, brother? How do you do it? But he does it faithfully. Why? Because he, he knows that he's there to serve the Lord, and it's not about them, but people can be our adversary. In Ezra chapter 4, verse number 1, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard of the children of the captivity that they builded the temple unto the Lord God of Israel. Then they came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said unto them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as ye do. They're a bunch of stinking liars. They were adversaries to, to Ezra and Zerubbabel and to Joshua, the high, they, were, they were being a total adversary, a total pain in the posterior until they realized they can't stop what's going on. And once they, they kind of had this attitude, well, if you can't lick them, join them. But they were insincere. They were saying, let us join you. Let us build with you. And they had an ulterior motive to try to hinder and hold back the work of God. Let me tell you something. The world will leave you alone until you start becoming effectual. Until you start meaning business for God, making a difference. The world is just fine with you. I mean, I have known, I, I have known lost people that they're just fine with somebody, you know, seeing them in the newspaper every now and then uh, under the, the criminal arrests and so forth until they get right with God and then they start doing right and they quit doing all of that evil stuff and now all of a sudden people that they thought were friends start attacking them. Oh, what are you, missionary now? Oh, and they start calling you reverend and they don't mean it with reverence, they mean it as a little snide remark. Oh, they were fine with you when you were in trouble all the time, but as soon as you start doing right, the world is going to become an adversary. We understand that. They're unbelievers. 
They don't know any better. But the next group of people is our friends and our allies. When they become adversaries, it becomes a little tougher pill to swallow. 2 Samuel 19, verse 22. And David said, What have I to do with you, ye sons of Zeruiah, that ye should this day be adversaries unto me? If you read this entire text in 2 Samuel 19, you'd see that what Abishai and what Joab, what they had in mind was to kill somebody who had been an enemy to David. And you think, well, what's wrong with that? That's their general. That's, that's David's henchman, really, so to speak. They're just, they're just upset that David got mistreated, and so they want to take care of him. But David understood, and this was after Absalom, his son, had turned on him. David understood that, hey, this kingdom is in a very precarious situation here. This is not the time to lop off people's heads. This is a time for healing. And David understood that even though their zeal and their ambition might have had some decent motives, they were being selfish and they weren't really seeing it from David's perspective. They were just, to be quite honest with you, they were just being dumb. And you know what? Sometimes our friends and our allies, they don't really realize what they're doing and from their standpoint, they think that they're doing something good or they think that they're right, but they're not able to see things through from your perspective. Even our allies can be selfish at times or even have hidden agendas. You know, Abishai and Joab were brothers. They were both sons of Zeruiah. They were both ambitious. They were both the kind of guys that in a battle, you want them on your side. And for the most part, both of them were always on David's side, but Abishai had a quality that his brother Joab didn't have. Abishai would tell David, let me go take off his head. David would say, no, I don't want you to do that. And Abishai would say, okay. And he wouldn't do it. Joab, David would say, look, I want you to spare him alive. And Joab would go and do just the opposite. Sometimes Joab would do the opposite of what David wanted, and actually sometimes Joab was right, and David was wrong. But the problem is that Joab always had a selfish and, in many cases, a hidden agenda. Sometimes our friends and allies will either purposefully or inadvertently become our adversary. You know, sometimes that our adversaries are reacting or overreacting to a perceived hurt, maybe a real hurt that we caused or a perceived hurt. Sometimes there are things going on that we don't understand what's going on behind the scenes. But rest assured, we've all been in that situation where someone that we thought was a friend or an ally we reached out to them in a time of need and we found only either unfaithfulness or disloyalty. We certainly didn't find what we expected. Now, how many of us have had to deal with the adversary of family before? When I thought about family, I thought about, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> 1 Samuel 1.6, it says, and her adversary also 
provoked her sore for to make her fret because the Lord had shut up her womb. This is Hannah. And um, Penina has all these kids. And, of course, you know, um, probably wasn't the smartest thing to have multiple wives to begin with. But one of them's having kids and the other one's not. Hannah's the one that's not. And the wife, Penina, is making her fret, provoking her, being an adversary, rubbing it in her face. I mean, it became a competition. And don't, don't you think, I mean, I've never been a wife before. Don't plan on ever doing it. I guess this day and age you can. But I don't plan on it. I, I don't plan on being a woman either. But I have been around them, and I can imagine that probably... Having multiple wives, the com competition probably is just something that's unavoidable. Competing for the affections of the husband, being the favorite, and so forth. I don't think that there's any human nature that would make... I mean, you put several ladies in the same realm, and it just sometimes doesn't work so well. Thanks for those chuckles. Made me less comfortable in saying the truth. <laughs> That's what's going on. But in her own home, in her own family, she's finding an adversary that she's having to deal with. Now, I got to hand it to Hannah that the one thing she did doesn't appear like that she fought back. It appears to me like that she just went to God with it. And she took her broken heart and her sorrowful spirit and said, I'm just going to talk to God about that. When you find yourself in a situation where friends and allies or even family have become your adversary, then uh, that's probably a good lesson to learn uh, that Hannah did is just, you know, just kind of take it as much as you can and, um, and take it to the Lord. Jesus said in Matthew 10:36, a man's foes shall be they of his own household. So it's natural. It's probably going to happen. Family can hurt you the most. Why? Because you care about them the most. And so that's just, it ends up being used. Sometimes family doesn't understand. You know, you may have had problems with your family when you got right with the Lord. And you started going forward for the Lord. And, you know, probably what happens when somebody gets saved or gets right with the Lord and they start growing and they start adopting principles from the scripture that changes the way that they live, sometimes parents or siblings can feel a little bit threatened, maybe feel like that you think that you're better than... How many times have I heard people say that within their family, somebody said, oh, you just think that you're better than us. And you've never done anything to communicate that. You've never felt that. You've never even thought that. You're just trying to follow the Lord. And so I'm not excusing when family becomes an adversary to someone who's trying to do right. I'm not excusing it, but I'm trying to throw in some understanding that Sometimes that's just naturally the way that they feel. Sometimes parents, when you, if you surpass them spiritually speaking, then they will just automatically feel like you're rejecting them in the way that they raised you. It's human nature. Once again, doesn't justify it, doesn't excuse it, but maybe 
if you are dealing with that kind of adversity, maybe that would just ease the pain just a little bit and make it a little bit more manageable. Family can hurt you the most because you care about them the most. I have noticed that with some longevity in the ministry, I was talking maybe with my wife, somebody else, maybe both here recently, how that earlier on in my ministry, I would deal with some problems and yeah, it hurt. It hurt when you had a problem and it wasn't resolved, somebody leave the church, it, it hurt years ago. But the older that I get, it's like, what's wrong with me, Lord? It's like this, this, this hurts. It's like now it's like it, 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 it almost destroys me. It almost devastates me. And it's really not as big a problem as what I dealt with 15, 20 years ago. But now it seems like it's worse. Maybe, Lord, I'm just getting older. And maybe, maybe just all of those losses and all those hurts just start piling up and start tearing down your resolve. And I got to thinking about it. It's like, no, I don't think that I'm any weaker I just think that the more, the longer that you have a relationship with someone, the more that they mean to you. And so when you have a problem, it hurts even worse. That adversity, that ad adversary becomes a, a little more sting. And we all know that unrequited love is a hard pill to swallow. I mean, David experienced it in Psalm 109, verse number four. He says, for my love, they are my adverse adversaries, but I give myself unto prayer. And when you love someone and they become your adversary, it, it takes something supernatural to just go to prayer for them. Our immediate emotional response is anger, indignation, revenge, Oh, this is so unfair. They are so unjust. And this sense of righteousness that every believer has makes that adversity, that adversary seem so much more evil and hurtful. This is just not fair. And you want to try to convince them. You want to try to defend yourself and explain, but you find that the more that you defend and the more that you explain, it just makes things worse and worse and worse. Hardest thing to do is to relinquish that right of hurt and keep loving. David said, for my love, they're my adversaries, but I'm going to give myself to prayer. I'm going to pray for them. As Paul said, don't, don't, uh, don't be overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Man, I, I feel like such a hypocrite saying that to you here this morning because how many times have I struggled to put that principle into exercise in my life? Oh, it's easy to say when you're telling other people, but when your heart is shredded by their betrayal of your love, it's not so easy. But folks, just because it's not easy doesn't mean that it's not right and true. And that by the grace of God, we've got to pray, God, I'm so hurt. I can't believe they did this to me. It's just not fair. You know, and, and you're just trying to defend yourself to God. And God's like, I know, son. And to be able to turn it over to him and say, God, I don't want revenge. I, I don't want that. I just want you to help me. Help me know how to deal with this. Help me to handle this. 
in a Christ-like way? How would Jesus have handled it? And that brings me to this next part of point number two, and that is dealing with people adversities. I am not the expert. And let me tell you something, there is not a one-size-fits-all when it comes to dealing with people adversaries. Sometimes we have to deal with it with an explanation or a rebuke. Here in Luke 13, verse number 16, we have here Jesus. I don't think that Jesus ever defended himself. I think that he would defend his actions. And so he had healed a woman on the Sabbath day. What did the Pharisees do? <laughs> this, he's not of God. I mean, here's this woman that's her whole life's been suffering and, and in misery. And they should have been rejoicing. If they cared about that woman, they'd be rejoicing. But they didn't even take time to think about it. <gasps> How dare you break the rule? Ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, this is your sister here, whom Satan hath bound, lo, these 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And when he had, when he had said these things, all his adversaries were ashamed, and all the people rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Man, sometimes I wish I had this power that Jesus had. How many times... Have I tried to explain or defend or rebuke when somebody was messed up in their thinking, or at least I thought so? It just made it worse. <laughs> but truly, there is a time in our people adversities that we need to give an explanation or even a rebuke. Jesus was right, and they saw it. And, you know, speaking of which, these Pharisees, the rules are a good thing. And most of these Pharisees, that movement, they started having rules because the Jews had just went so liberal. They'd went so far away from God that it was cultural and they were worshiping God in name only. And the Pharisees came along and they wanted it to be real and righteous. And so they started establishing all these rules. But the problem is, is they lost sight of God in the whole process, and all they seemed to care about was the rules. I think we ought to have rules, but we also need to care about people. I think caring about people and having rules is kind of the same thing as that epoxy mix. You've got to have a little bit of both, or uh, if you just care about people and not rules, you're going to become liberal. If you just care about rules and not people, you're going to become pharisaical. There's a ditch on both sides of that road. So sometimes explanation or rebuke. Sometimes we need to take the high road and just yield to it. Matthew 5.25, Jesus said, Agree with thine adversary quickly whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, the judge deliver thee to the officer, thou be cast into prison. Sometimes you just got to take the high road and just yield to it. You know, sometimes you're better off to take the immediate beating than to take a perpetual beating for the next 5, 10, or 20 years with the people in your life that have become adversaries to you. Now, listen, I don't think that Jesus 
is promoting that we patronize our adversaries. I don't believe that anybody ought to admit to something that they're not truly guilty of. I don't care how the outcome might be better, all right? But be honest and be truthful. But the best thing that we can do sometimes, even if we're right, it's like don't admit to something that you didn't do, but maybe yield, maybe take the high road and say, look, let's just not worry about this. It's just not worth all of the trouble and heartache over some little thing. You ever noticed how when people become your adversary and it prolongs, it goes on, the whole thing gets blown up into proportion, especially if you sit around and talk about it. You know, when you talk about your adversaries, you will start trying to, you'll start trying to figure out what they're all about, why they did it to you. Oh, I bet I know what they were thinking. Well, you may not know what they were thinking or, you know, and you end up, it gets all worked up into your mind and it becomes something that it's not. Guess what? When that happens, you might as well enjoy your adversary because he's always going to be your adversary because you won't let peace come in. Jesus says, hey, you're better off to just take the high road sometimes. The next thing. Don't supply your adversary's admonition. 1 Timothy 5.14 I will therefore that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. Paul's telling these young widows that, listen, you, you have the privilege. You can, you can marry, you can stay single. Paul's not saying that what they do with their love life is any of his business. But what he is saying is that if you can't control your tongue and you do what is natural for a young widow to do and start gossiping and backbiting and, uh, you know, you don't have, you don't have uh, accountability anymore, if you can't manage it, then you're better off to just get married and have more kids. That's not a commandment. That's just the Lord saying that if you don't, sometimes we have to manage our life in a manner to keep us from doing things that's going to give our adversaries ammunition. You know, um, probably the biggest problem in our country today is not that the Holy Spirit is not working. I think the Holy Spirit's working just as well as he's ever worked. The problem is, is God's people have given so much, uh, so much, um, what's the word, uh, so much occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully of us. There's a lot of things that the world has to say about Christians. They're not necessarily making it up. Sometimes Christians are the worst testimony to Christianity. That ought not be the way that it is. And so if we've got adversaries, don't supply them ammunition. Do right. Take the high road. Do whatever you have to do to make changes in your life, to demonstrate to your adversaries that you're a real Christian. Now, let me say this. When we as Christians are not the leaders in grace and forgiveness, 
Why would they listen to our message that God will extend to you grace and forgiveness when we won't do it to them? You, you, you get the picture there? It's powerful. Next, don't be afraid of them, Philippians 1.28, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries. The next thing is follow Christ's example. Luke 23, verse 34, then said Jesus, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, Jesus understood they don't really know what they're doing. Yeah, they knew they were crucifying him. They weren't sleepwalking here. They knew they were crucifying Jesus of Nazareth, but the problem is they didn't really know or believe who he really was. And so, yeah, they didn't know what they were doing. Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They didn't ask for forgiveness. They didn't repent. But Jesus found it in his heart to say to look on them in compassion. And sometimes with our people adversaries, we have to follow Christ's example. People can be provoked into being our adversaries. Frequently, they are unknowingly prompted by our first adversary, that's the devil. We read in the scripture that the devil affected Peter, the devil filled the heart of Judas. We find that Ananias and Sapphira, Peter said, why hath Satan filled thine heart? So sometimes it's an ally between our first adversary, the devil, and the people adversaries that are in our lives. Sometimes our adversaries are providential. 1 Kings eleven fourteen, and the Lord stirred up an adversary unto Solomon. You know, God may put some adversaries in your life to keep you humble. You may find out that you're better. You know, you'll learn more things from your enemies than you will your friends. Sometimes your enemies have a more accurate assessment of you than your friends do. You can learn from them or you can despise our last enemy or adversary, I won't spend much time on, because I don't need to spend much time on, number three, ourselves. Ourselves. Second Timothy 2.25, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. The devil certainly is an adversary. People can be our adversary, but usually, usually our biggest adversary is ourself. We just cause ourselves most of our problems. In conclusion, I want to reiterate what I've already said. With great opportunity comes great adversity. The greater the opportunity, the greater adversity. I look around in this auditorium here this morning and I tell you, I see great opportunity. I see God wanting to do a work in your life. I see God wanting to use you, to heal you, to help you, to strengthen you, to get glory and honor through you. Boy, what a great bunch of opportunity right here on this front row. I see that. And with great opportunity comes great adversity. But remember, Remember, folks, we have a God who knows and a God who cares. David said in Psalm 31, 7, I will be glad and rejoice in thy mercy, for thou hast considered my trouble. Thou hast known my soul in adversities. Sometimes it's the adversities that bring you closer to the Lord in a way that nothing else 
could help. Listen, God already knows all about us. But for David to say, thou hast known my soul and adversities, it wasn't God figuring out anything about David. It was David figuring out a few things about David. And usually it's adversity that brings that to our attention. The main thing you need to know and remember is Romans 8.31. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who shall be against us? There's a story in the Old Testament. It's in 2 Kings 6. It's Elisha, and they're getting ready to go out against a bunch of Syrians. And, you know, the servant is just, he's scared to death. He sees all of the chariots and the, the number of the host coming against them. And Elisha, the preacher, he's not even, he ain't stressing at all about it. And so he's like, what's, what's going on, preacher? Why, why aren't you worried about this? And Elisha said, it's okay, son. There's more for us than what's, a, the, than what's for them. He's looking around. He's like, this doesn't make sense. This looks like we got a little ragtag bunch of soldiers going against an entire mighty army. Elisha says, Lord, open his eyes. The Lord opened his eyes, and he saw there on the hills all these chariots of fire and this great multitude of angelic beings, probably dressed in battle array with their swords drawn. And he saw that and he realized, wow, I got a whole lot more for me than I realized. Brothers and sisters, if God be for you, who can be against you? That's not saying that you're not going to have adversaries because God's for you. You will. But it doesn't matter because if God's for you, the whole world can be against you and everything's going to be just fine.